we are back. Hello and welcome to This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. I'm David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening. No one cares. The show where every episode's the last episode. So let's enjoy this final show. Today, my guest, my friend, George Strombolopoulos, Mr. Spangianapapapadopoulos, is a media personality. He's got a show on Apple Music called The Strombo Show, and he's here to, I don't know, Get serious? I've got a few things I want to thank him for, and I'm hoping to get his take on what makes a good interviewer. So let's get a little stupid, let's get a little serious, and let's get very started here with George Strompolopoulos. But first, the very best part of this show, perhaps the only reason why you should listen, the theme music. I've already started being a shit disturber. Let's start fresh. Hello, George. Record. Hello, David Cooper. How are you? Wait, you weren't recording? No. Then you, when you said one, two, three, how am I supposed to sync it up with audio that you don't have? One, two, three, four. There you go. <laughs> how long have you been in this business? Jesus. Long enough to know that, uh, you know, I'm just, I'll figure it out. Long enough to know that I should look over. What are you drinking? Uh, just an energy drink, a little guru to get my, uh, get the horsey started. Yeah, let's talk about your uncle, because I know you told me that he was a huge influence in your life. My whole life. Yeah, the most influential man in my life, in fact, and by a million miles. Yeah, yeah, Uncle Paul, what a man. What a man. You know, when you're raised by a single mom, you need really strong male influences in your life. And I was really grateful to have my uncle, who was not only a good man, like one of those good guys that most people will never get to be, but he also had really great taste in music and film, and he used to take me to independent movies when I was 12 and watch stuff that maybe most parents wouldn't think to bring their kids to go see, but he just never talked to me like a kid. He always treated me like an adult. He was a really good man. My fucking brother dragged me to Grateful Dead concerts, and that's my legacy. That's what I've been trying to run away from my whole life. I even pretend I'm not a deadhead. Dude, don't run from it. Run to it. Because it's a real gift to not be treated like a kid. I'm one of those dudes who never really listened to kids' music for the most part, never really read kids' books as a kid. My mother would sing and my uncle would sing grown-up songs to me. So I think part of the reason why I am pretty okay is because I approached this world like an adult from the very beginning, at least artistically. I don't know. There's something to be said for being treated like a kid and getting to be a kid, but I think from what I know from you, your life circumstances sort of required growing up quickly. Yeah, for sure. But uh, the, the thing about being a kid and being young is that, you know, growing up in the kinds of neighborhoods I grew up in, you were free. So in the era I grew up in, you were free. My mother would say, go outside, and I wouldn't be allowed home until the lights came on. So we were, never mind helicopter parenting, our parents, I remember bumping into my mom at a bus stop once, I hadn't seen her for a week and she asked if I was ever coming home and it was really sweet. Like we, so it's, it's not that I didn't have a childhood. It's that I was free and I was unencumbered. And I think also, you know, when you grow up in the seventies and the eighties, you, 
immigrant family. I think I'm the first person in my family born in Canada and on that side of my family. And so you just learn to, you just learn to go make your own fun. And I was really grateful for it. So I, I didn't, I didn't get treated like a child with entertainment. I was obviously protected. My mom cared greatly for me, but I, I was able to kind of go out there and just do my thing. And I think that was really, really, really instrumental in, uh, in, in me becoming the person I became. It's interesting. I grew up with no supervision as well, but it was because by the time my parents had me, the accident, they just didn't give a shit. You know, they just sort of whatever, come home whenever you want. Mm -hmm. But I grew up very differently than you. I, I didn't grow up in a rough neighborhood. I did go to high school with a very famous rapper, so it was pretty rough. You went to high school with a famous rapper? Which rapper? Yeah, Drake. Drake, yeah. It was a rough school, though. You know, you'd be in the parking lot and there'd be a parent in a Mercedes G-Class and they'd be, on their, they'd be on their cell phone and they could hit you <laughs> because they weren't paying attention. So it was actually very dangerous. And they probably knew the judges and so they would get off. Yeah. You know, I was th reflecting on people in my life that have been very good to me because that's what I imagine your uncle to be. Yeah. Maybe I'm just totally projecting. But there's like people in our lives who have no business being good to you. They're not necessarily your parent. They're not necessarily your closest friend, and they go out of their way to be good to you. Would you describe your uncle like that? He's a great guy. I mean, I think he had that family responsibility that you do, and it's family, but uh, he was good to everybody. Yeah, listen, it's, I think it's really simple. I think those who have a reason to be good to you and those who are good to you because they're good people are very different. And also in my neighborhood, like I think honestly, and I, and I know that every culture has this, but if you're, a, if you're raised in an immigrant culture, you um, and an immigrant neighborhood. It's just a very different experience. You know, I, I never watched, what was that show that Drake was on? Um, Degrassi. Degrassi. I watched the original. The original was good. Yeah. I remember when it was out and I never watched it because I was like, that, that's, I don't know what this is. <laughs> that's not my life. <laughs> right. And I think that the ethnic, the ethnic experience in Toronto was never really represented on television. You, you had a moment with King of Kensington but so we didn't really grow up seeing what other people lived like. I had no idea what other people lived like. But my neighborhood was actually really great. I mean, yeah, sure, there was roughness, but it was it was nothing that nobody couldn't handle. You know, we we everybody just figured their way through it. And you knew how to avoid trouble for the most part. So Rexdale is is infamous now, and Rexdale was dynamite then. Same with Malton. So I think that those two neighbors, if if anybody listening to this knows Rexdale or Malton, they know what it's like. You know, they know what, what, what that neighborhood is like. And I loved it. I was so grateful for it. And my uncle was just one of those rad dudes. But so was my aunt. So was my mom. So are most of my neighbors. Uh, it was just like that old school immigrant collection of people uh, when Toronto was a very different city than it is today. Yeah. People who you needed when people who were around for you when you needed the most and in your opinion, had no business being around for you. You wouldn't describe your uncle like that. No, no, my uncle had every business being around because we were family. But, but lots of people in family don't step up, and he did. But also so did my aunt. Like, that's key, right? So like my whole family, it's, it's that whole cliche, it takes a village. If you are raised by, at least it was my experience, we grew up way below the poverty line. So if you grew up in that kind of situation, your mom has multiple jobs. My mom had multiple jobs. So you need, you need a community to take care of the kids. My mom would take care of other people's kids. We, this is just how it worked. We, I grew up really lucky in the sense that I never in a million years believed anything in the system was on my side. 
I never believed the police were on my side, the cops were on, like the judges, I never believed the school, I never believed the church was on my side, I certainly didn't believe the government was on my side. So I never grew up with this. You know how everybody now is like freaking out about the state of the world? It's just because they didn't pay attention or they were so protected as kids. They thought that, like, I always think, what did you think, th- what did you think this world was going to be about? So I never grew up that way. What I realized though early was that who is on your side are other people. Yeah. And that you got to find those who will care for you because it's the right thing to do. And it's your responsibility to care for them, whether or not you know them. And that's kind of the community that I grew up in. So even though it was by definition, problematic or compromised and you know in terms of all like the infrastructure stuff it didn't feel that way at all it just felt like a bunch of cool people taking care of each other so fast forward a bit you're starting to make a name for yourself in media you're a little bit older how does the relationship with your uncle shift at that point he was so proud of me he was so he was so happy for me i'm very lucky as well david that my entire family doesn't really care what i do for a living and never did so they just didn't care. And they, they liked it. They thought it was kind of funny. My mother used to laugh saying, this is not what I thought was going to happen. There was no, you know, there was nobody in my family that thought, yeah, it's your path. My grandmother used to always say, just become a, she wanted me to drive a streetcar for the TTC because she said, you can get in the union and you can sit down for a living. And you get a sick pension. Well, at least then you got a sick pension. Th- then you did. That's right. So I never, um, it was never even remotely different when my career became what it became, like never even a little bit, because that's just how interesting my family was, uh, sincerely. And at the peak of my television profile in Canada, my mother would often talk to me about leaving it, saying, this isn't like, you know, you don't have to do this. Just, you know, go become a preacher, go do something else. You know, they didn't, they didn't put any value on it whatsoever, except that it made me happy. That's the only thing they really cared about. Again, I don't remember I, I'm sure it happened, but I can't recall anybody really asking me what I wanted to do for a living. It didn't matter. We didn't get, we didn't have careers in my family. You went and got a job. So I never had any pressure on me to perform in school. My mom a couple times had some issues with my report cards because they were really bad. But my, all I did, like my uncle and I would sit, we would read the newspaper together when I was 10 or 11. We'd read books. We would talk about what we read. So he would, you know, I went to his house last night after he passed and I just looked at his bookshelf and you could tell a lot about a person by what's on their bookshelf. Yeah. And you know that he read the books on his bookshelf. And it's just an incredible collection of, of ideas and thinkers. And this is what my family valued, which is, did you read? Were you a good person? Did you treat others well? Did you stay engaged in the world? But they, they honestly had no concept. It's part of one of the great joys of, my, of, of how lucky I was in my career when it, when it took off was that it didn't matter. <laughs> never there was no sense of validation whatsoever for me because i knew i knew what it took to get there and i knew how much luck and the grace of others and the pressures of the marketplace allowed me to have this opportunity so honestly that's and so my family didn't care at all but my relationship with my uncle was dope because um i got to do little things that a lot of people wouldn't get to do uh, my uncle loved bb king so i got to get some stuff from bb king for him but my uncle was a huge Oh, I, I fucking hate you. I'm a big B.B. King fan. I know. But also, my uncle introduced me to the music of Gordon Lightfoot and John Prine. And, uh, you know, Prine is one of my favorites of all time, as is Gord. And I have these distinct memories of walking downstairs at my grandmother's house where my, where my uncle lived. And there was his stack of records. And I would always see Gord's gold in a Prine recollect, his Prine collection. And so one day I got to, I said to my uncle, hey, come to my house. And he came to my house on a random day. And he showed up and John Prine and Gordon Lightfoot were here. Fuck. 
And my uncle got to hang out with John Pontecorvo. And so that to me is like the little, and then, you know, yesterday when I went to his house, there's a photograph on his mantle of me and him and Gordon Lightfoot and a picture of John Prine. And I just thought, oh, that's sweet. You know, I'm such a fan of all that stuff. And uh, I, I still can't listen to that track, All the Best by John Prine, because I discovered it maybe three weeks after my ex-wife and I separated. And that's a chilling song about a breakup right there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it really is. Really is. I got to I got to sing Old Lang Syne with John Prine and Iris DeMent on stage at the Grand Ole Opry on New Year's Eve, the last year of his life. Uh, it was uh, quite a special moment. Yeah. What do you do after that? You just go home and chill out. You're like, fuck it. Career's over. That's it. I, I did everything I needed to do. Yeah. I, I kind of felt like I kind of feel like I'm just getting started in my career, if I'm being honest. But it, it what it does is it because I've, I've been able to do all the things that you set out to do in a traditional media environment. I've been able to do some stuff in the atypical media environment, and I really like uh, trying different things. I have never been connected to the industry. As much as I was in it, I always felt like I wasn't part of it, but not in a bad way, not in a way like I wanted to be in it. I just never really respected the game. And I, so I don't really care about that kind of thing. And I think it's part of the reason why maybe when I, when I did have some profile in Canada, people liked me and they connected to me because they knew I wasn't trying to do this thing. I was just talking about the ideas. And that was always very interesting to me because I thought this career was very fleeting. Now, I've been lucky that it's still going 32. This December is 32 years since I've been on the air. Jesus. Consistently, which is a long ass time. <laughs> I found this path by fucking accident. Mm-hmm. Like I literally got invited onto a radio show to promote something. And I remember walking away from that appearance eight years ago, thinking to myself, this is something you can actually do. Yeah. I know it sounds stupid, but I was 27, 28 years old. And I had, it had never occurred to me you could be on the air. It never occurred to me that I could interview people. It sounds silly, but and if I hadn't have been invited to that radio show, I'd still be programming on my computer right now, making a lot more money. Way more money. <laughs> so much more money. <laughs> Actually, to talk about that, you were talking about how your parents and family never took notice. Like they, they were happy that you did what you did and that it made you happy, but they weren't like impressed by it or not impressed by it. They just didn't care. Right. My parents, especially when their parents were alive, at least my projection of them, this is kind of an unfair view of them. They're whole people. They're not this negative. But I think when they looked at us kids, a part of it was, do you make us look good to your friends? Are you successful? Do you on paper? You know, all the kind of judgmental negativity was projected onto us in terms of what we did. And I've seen this dramatic shift in them. It isn't by me doing anything. It's by their friends taking notice of what I'm doing mm -hmm. and being interested, engaged, or impressed with it. And that's causing them to have a dramatic shift where they're turning into these parents that are sort of exactly how you describe yours as a kid. And it's very nice. But a lot of my kind of fraught, negative struggles are around my dysfunction with my parents, which is increasingly not there. And it's sort of like, well, who am I creatively when I get along with my parents? But I know that's a part of growing up as an artist. That's a sidebar. Right. Yeah. And you realize your parents, like you said, it. you said it exactly right. Your parents are whole. Right. They're just something else. I was raised by mom, my mom. And I think my career, it was the opposite for her. My mom is deeply private. My mom doesn't have a cell phone, doesn't have internet, doesn't have an email. My mother is not on the grid in that way. She doesn't want to be found, but she would, she's very religious. So she would go to church and the pastor would be talking 
about something that I said on the show the night before, something very critical of the church. So my mother would slink in the back of the of the church because she didn't want anybody to know that I was her son because we have very different uh, approaches to values. We have similar values in the sense that we care about other people and we work hard on behalf of other people, but we just do it for different reasons. And so, so yeah, my mother is very, very private. When I post a photo of my mother and I on Instagram, like last night, she freaked out on me about, she just does not want anything public. She got stopped on the street because somebody recognized her from my Instagram and she does not like that. <laughs> she does not like that at all. She's so tiny and cute, man. She really is. She really is. Yeah. There's nothing about what I do for a living. That's interesting to my mom at all. The only thing she cared about was what kind of person I was sincerely. And she would tell me that all the time. She would say, well, you know, what's, what's that? I don't even know. Like, I'm not even going to get the Bible verse, right? What, you know, what, what's the point of having every, the riches of, of, of the earth? You know, if you go to hell, like that whole idea, like who cares if you're a bad person, who cares if you sell, I've been offered contracts before that I didn't take cause I didn't like the company. And my mother, every time I got offered a deal and I would say to my mom, Hey, I was thinking about doing this. Her first thing is what is it bad for you? And are you doing bad things with it? She has no interest in this career whatsoever. She has every interest in me being an okay person. It's a very strange, it's a very strange relationship my mom and I have because she's very, very religious, not religious in the way that everybody has some kind of spirituality. My mom is 100% by the book. There isn't a single thing about my mom's life that isn't by the book um, spiritual. And I am obviously not that, but we have such a tender relationship and we, we treat each other so beautifully. And I'm just so lucky to have her. I'm just so lucky to have her. And my mom, my mom, my uncle, my aunt, my grandmother, my sister, you know, we were, it's a small little group and it was uh, pretty lovely. Gratitude. That's one that I'm increasingly engaging more with. But again, my whole on-air persona is curmudgeonly, not gracious. Yeah. I'm going through a bit of a shift and, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Well, you're going to have to shift because the closer you can get the person you are on the air to the person you actually are, the stronger your tools will be to have real conversations and the more free you will become to talk about what really matters. Because there's two ways to do three. There's three ways really to do this career. And I've come across all kinds uh, in this business. There are the people who are just doing it to be joker, just having fun. They want to make people laugh. That's it. There's nothing else. And they'll do whatever they can to get the laugh. Then there are the people who are building a persona because it's the thing, but it's not really who they are. And the, the, that's a, not that it's fraudulent, it's a character. And then there are the people who are really on a search for the truth. The, everybody in the middle falls away. Everybody in the middle falls away and they have moments in their career, but they fall away. If you perfect either one of those three, you can have a long run. The question is, which one do you want? <laughs> which one is the one that, I mean, you're so smart and so interesting. <laughs> See, here's, I, I know you've been in this longer than me, but here's where I don't know that I agree with you. I, I, I'll, I'll concede there's those three personas. Yep. But I think they're hats you can wear at any given time. Yeah. But I think I, I also think I round up to agreeing with you now that I, I play this out because that deep layer, the someone who's really searching for the truth, trying to have real conversations, trying to connect with people, mm -hmm. that's the foundation from which being full of shit occasionally for the laugh is built on. Yeah. You know, for me, for me. Of course, I say all kinds of crazy shit on the air for fun to make people laugh. And I know, but, but, the, but the foundation is I'm not pretending. I'm not pretending. And I actually think you can do two of the three. I don't think you can do three of the three. I don't think you, I think you're either going to be searching for the truth or you're going to be just bullshit. Either way is valuable. I'm not saying one is more valuable than the other. You just got to pick one of the three, but I do think jokes. And I think for some people it's, they lean into the emotional component, the spiritual component, you know, the, the public radio where they just go, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. That kind of nurture. Yeah, I'm not that nurturing guy. So there's the nurturing stuff, but then there's also the jokey stuff, which is what I'm more into. Because I'm very Gen X, my jokes are not very appropriate for the times, but I still love making them. But at the end, it's the search for the truth. And I think that as you get older on the air, you've got to decide which one you're going to lean towards. Well, for me, it's oscillating between the two frantically. Like an episode of this show about a month ago, one of my regular contributors, Tony, disappeared for a few weeks. And long story short, he tried to commit suicide, got pulled into the hospital by a cop that kind of found him. Oh, man. Uh, on his way to do that and got held in the hospital for, I think, 24 or 36 hours. We were talking about anal fissures and fisting, and then we got into that, and he was on the verge of tears, and it was super serious. And then we end with the anal fissures and fisting, and to me, that's like, right. I, there's nothing wrong with that. It's different, but we're, we're playing the, we're fool, and then we're being really real. Were the two connected? Not necessarily. I think they're just connected by the fact that we use humor to cover some dark shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for sure. No, I think, I think, in fact, I think that when somebody, you know, has anytime you're behind a microphone or a camera, there are versions of yourself that you are exploring. And I think you use lots of tools. One of them is comedy. One of them tears. One of them is silence. There are lots of ways you can get to it. But the difference is, is your persona true or not? And the older you get, the more you do this, the closer to the truth it gets. What's interesting is as my persona becomes more and more real, so too does me staring at myself in the mirror and knowing who I am. It's not like I have this complete sense of who I am and then on the air I have no idea or on the air I have this really complete sense of of self and then in person I'm a wishy-washy fucker. Like those two things are developing at the same time together and they're pretty close. Yeah, you're not wishy-washy at all. You have strong values and strong points of view. I guess. Or at least the guy that I know. The guy that I know. (laughs) Well, the guy that you know is also not that confident, but that's a separate issue. (laughs) But most people aren't, and that's okay. Most people aren't. Were you at the hospital yesterday? I was. Yeah, I was just thinking about my uncle, actually. My great uncle, who was an immigrant, grew up in Kensington Market back when that was like a Jewish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. His brother, my grandfather, was in construction, and he paid for his brother to go to dental school. Right. But my uncle grew up poor. He was a dentist, which, pretty good job. Totally. But I didn't really have a relationship with him. And I remember I flunked out of school. I went to civil engineering at Dalhousie University. I flunked out. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I had applied for a job at Ed's Record World. Do you remember that store at Eglinton in Toronto? Oh, my God. I've seen it, but I don't even remember. Eglinton and Bathurst area? No, Eglinton and... And Young? Young, yeah, right there. Young, yeah, okay, yeah. I know of it. Yeah. I think I think the owner went to jail for like tax stuff. I don't know. That's hearsay. You know, don't sue me, Ed. Although if you're in jail, you're going to have a hard time suing me. <laughs> and I had applied to like every school to study what I wanted to do, which was math and computers. And I was so convinced that if I got this job at Ed's Record World, I would that would be my life. And I went to the dentist to see my great uncle. And he gave me a big lecture. And he happened to sit on some Ontario dental board with this woman. This is kind of a shitty story because it's a bit makes me look like a nepotist, but fine. This is what happened. Uh, he sits on the board of some dental thing with this woman who's also a dentist, but she's also somehow involved with the University of Toronto admissions. And so he says to her the next day, this guy's applied. He's just flunked out of school. Can you just give his 
application a chance. Look at everything he did in high school. Look at his letter. Just give it a chance. If, he, if he's no good for University of Toronto for math and computers, don't let him in. But can you just can you just give it a second look? And I don't know if that opened the door for me or not. Right. But I know three weeks later, just before school is about to start, they're like, fine, you can come on academic probation. I got off probation. But I wonder if he hadn't have done that for me. I didn't get into really any other school. I didn't get into Waterloo. And it's a small thing. I think every family does whatever they can to do to help their family get ahead. And I have no problem with it whatsoever. I have no problem with it whatsoever. I think what would, what would suck is if the person who received that benefit walked around and act like they didn't get help from others and as a result didn't help others. But I don't think you operate that way. No, no, no. I, I, I'm not shy about this. This is something that happened. I don't. Also, you know, you know, you owe nobody to tell them your backstory. That's the thing that's different in this world. Everybody's talking about, oh, this Nepo baby, this thing, this. Your family does whatever they got to do for you. Uh, and if you benefit from the hard work and the luck of your family and you want to keep that private, that's your job. To It's whatever you want. It's what happened. You know? Uh, yeah. I may have gotten into U of T without that. I may not have. But I got in. And I did, it was just such a small thing. But I later found out he like really went to bat for me. And when he died about a year and a half ago, I realized that if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have got a computer degree. I wouldn't have gone to the US. Yada, yada, yada. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. And it's just, there's these moments in our lives where people have really no business being good to us that really have such a huge outcome on, on who we are. I, the way I, I think about it all the time, I call it the grace of others. The grace of others, somebody just goes to bat for you. And by the way, it probably happens way more than we know behind the scenes. Somebody who never tells us that they put in a good word for us. It, it is the grace of others when you become successful on any level. And this concept of a self-made person, I think I've met only one or two self-made people in my life. Maybe one or two. Pretty much everybody else is not a self-made person. It is a community-made person, a bunch of strangers-made person. And, I, and that's why it's so important not to forget that. And it's so important to be part of the grace of the next group of others. Which is like, that's what's so crazy about this business. Especially because you and I grew up in an era, and I'm a, a lot older than you, but we still grew up in an era where the guys like the, like the Lettermans were unbelievable. We grew up in an era of these sort of baby boomers into Gen X kind of insane dissonance with the culture in the Reaganomics, Thatcher, Brian Mulroney's. We grew up when biting social commentary was a thing. So we grew up being watching these gods. These gods make us laugh while, while taking us through the insanity of this world. And as a result, that leads to the rise of crazy celebrity because they had all these talk shows to go on and everybody became famous. That led to, and so we, we led to a thing where we valued fame and validation, right? We valued that because our whole life was about television. We were that television era where everybody had cable and all that stuff. And, and so everybody thinks that fame is real, but fame is only, only good if you do something decent with it. Otherwise, I always think of fame as like a white hot light. And if you, just, if you have it shining just on you, it'll burn you. And if you don't, and basically the person they see is like those ashes in Pompeii, just like the, the, the shadow that's left. What you're supposed to do with it is kind of point it in the, take that light and point it in the corners of the room that get no light and do something good with it. And it screws, it screwed our era up because we, we grew up with TV fame and then watching internet fame. And it's wholly unnatural. It's wholly unnatural. So to, to, 
What really is exciting is can you take your opportunity to do good things like your great uncle did? Put in a word, get somebody over. Well, I think for every time that someone opens a door for you and you think to yourself, why me? Do I deserve this? Is it because I had some connection? You've got to open a door for someone else. You know, that's kind of, yeah. I haven't had the opportunity really. I mean, maybe a little in what little reach I have in media, but in my last career, I really had that opportunity. And it's now that I've left that career, it's those times that I had no business helping people that really needed it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know how much those jobs pay in Silicon Valley. Yeah. There were a few opportunities where I was able to take a chance on someone to really like elevate them out of poverty, help them pay off their parents' mortgage, you know, and they didn't have the good Harvard, MIT, fancy backgrounds. In some cases, they had no tech background at all because you can get a job as an engineer without a degree. It's a bit tougher, but there's ways to do it. Mm -hmm. Like those are the things that I really reflect on that I'm really proud of. Yeah, you have to do it. There's a life hack for the, do I deserve this situation? And the answer is always no. You don't, because nobody deserves it, right? It's, did the opportunity present itself? Yes. What am I going to do with it? Cool. But adding any extra shit to it makes it, I think, insane. I think it's insane. And I understand why people do it, and it's because, you know, they have to create some sort of self-worth, and I'm not knocking it. But this idea of deserving, nobody deserves. We're, I don't believe in a higher power, right? I believe that we're animals. I believe that this, we are just mammals. And this is, so if, so why would I assume now, am I entitled to opportunity and rights? I believe everybody should be entitled to opportunity and a fair shake and good justice. I believe that, but deserve, what does deserve mean when we're a bunch of animals? The fact that we all get along even a little bit, the ones who do get along is amazing to me. And we don't, and not nearly as many get along as should. Right. So I, so I always, I never think about it as deserve. I just think about it as well, that one worked out. Well, that one didn't work out. And, and we, we keep going. But that's just my, 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 my brain chemistry. It's a fair view. Well, I, I actually think the people that are probably the least, quote unquote, deserving, who society looks at and says this person deserves the least, those are the most deserving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, absolutely. Because there have been enough stacked against them. Absolutely. Yeah. But here's my thought process. Here's where I'm trying to drive this. Your uncle passes. Someone who means a lot to you. I'm thinking, okay, my great uncle... This is someone who meant a lot to me, who, in my opinion, had no reason to be good to me. And I've never got the chance I have in person to thank you because I view you as one of those people who was good to me when you had no business being that way. I'll let the listener singular intended because that's our listenership, George. That was a great joke. That was perfectly executed. Go fuck yourself. I loved it. I, I, I smiled. I smiled. <laughs> We met, I tell a couple stories about you, thereby exploiting our friendship. One is about sobriety, which I'll get to in a bit. But the other is you introduced me to somebody I had already sent my demo materials to, and they totally ignored me. I had no idea until I'd been in this media business for a second how much it's like who you know. Yeah, totally. It's very hard. The only way to get in the door is if you have 100 billion followers. And even then, it doesn't... And you introduced me to what became my old boss, my old now, you know, agent. And all you said was, hey, check this guy out. And he did. And I'm sure he could have said, go fuck yourself. I don't feel like you in any way, like you did the same thing my uncle did. You said, review this guy's materials, whatever. If it doesn't work, don't let him into school. If it doesn't work, just that's it. But you introduced me to the, a program director. I think I told him he'd be crazy if he didn't hire you. Something to that effect. 
well, I didn't know you, you endorsed me that way. Something to that effect. Yeah. I said that. Yeah. I said that you were the best guy that I'd heard do this since I heard Jim. And without that, I don't have the job at Bell. I don't even know where I'm at right now. Without that, I'm probably back in tech out of money kind of thing. Right. And I, I just wanted to thank you because it, it, your uncle passes, my great uncle. This is where my thought connection's going. And I just, I wanted to exploit our friendship for good content and thank you on a podcast. I was happy to do it, my friend, happy to do it. And I thought that you would be really, I thought you would do wonderful things with the opportunity. That's what I thought. I, I, I wasn't sure if you would do it. I wasn't sure where the fit would be. Uh, I think you, you're on a different path than what Canadian media is on, that media in general is on. Well, sorry, what traditional media is on. So I didn't know what would come of it, but I knew that if you were given the opportunity, you would be good. And so I had no doubt about that. Not being on the traditional path is kind of interesting because there isn't really a job for what I want. Like I want a late night talk show, comedy, fun, serious, like Craig Ferguson style. The guy's full of shit and funny and talks to a skeleton. And yet he's the only one who stands up 15 years ago and says, leave Brittany alone because I'm an alcoholic and I know what she's going through. It's just like that where I think you can be the Joker and on a search for truth, like you said earlier, at the same time. I'm using Craig Ferguson as an example here. But like that format for someone who doesn't already have a huge following and can't bring them with them, that format for a beginner or someone who just is getting their career started doesn't exist in radio anymore, really. I, I played with that format when I was working for Bell, but once they canceled the show, it's not like they replaced it with a similar show. No, no. But I think that radio is, exists in what you're doing here and radio exists on YouTube. Uh, the difference is you self-finance it early. But if you take a look at Mr. Beast, right? Ten year, five years ago, nobody heard of Mr. Beast. Today, a lot of people know who Mr. Beast is, but a ton of people don't know who Mr. Beast is. And I'm not sure it's ever been bigger than Mr. Beast. Yeah, YouTube. <laughs> right. In terms of uh, a singular, yeah. Totally. And maybe Joe Rogan, maybe Joe Rogan is that, you know, is, is that Mr. Beast level in his space, but that's kind of, it. they're not traditional media. No, they are not traditional media. So I think that, I think there's more opportunities for you today than there would have been 15 years ago. Right. And I think there's more space to take up to plant your flag today than you did uh, 15 years ago. It's why I do most stuff online yep. and less stuff with traditional media because I don't really want to work with traditional media. I've done it. The ground level at traditional media gives you clout, gives you built-in viewership, listenership, whatever. It's a decent job. The ground level of an independent creator, new media, doing it on your own is tough, man. Mm -hmm. There's that ground level. There's millions of people down there. The higher levels, an independent creator, new media, whatever, you're a YouTuber, you're a podcaster, whatever it is, the highest level is so much higher than traditional media, especially radio. Right. But I would also suggest that it is much, much, much easier today to be a ground floor, nobody knows who you are, independent creator, than it was 20 years ago trying to get into a radio station. Yeah. Because there were gatekeepers. There are no gatekeepers anymore. There are no gatekeepers. The only thing that will hold you back now is your ability to pull it off. That's it. Like most people who are enormous on YouTube right now and on podcasts. Now, I'm not talking about the second wave of podcasters who are already famous in traditional lines of work. And then they came over here and took all the ad dollars because they thought it would be fun for a while to augment their stand-up tours. But I'm talking about the real creators, the real creators, the most famous people in the world in terms of those kinds of creators started like they built it. 
they built it. It is so much easier today than it has ever been. Yes, there are lots more people. There are a lot more people trying it, but so what? If, if you're good enough, you'll find your audience. And if you're not, you won't. And that's the game. <laughs> that's the game. Nobody's entitled to being heard. You're, you can say what you want. Whether or not anybody connects to it, that's up to the market. That's up to other people. That's up to the public. So nobody's entitled to be heard. You're entitled to speak in your career. But to be heard, that's not up to us. This is so wild. You're touching on something that I talk about so much. It's the Bhagavad Gita. This idea that, like the Hindu scripture, mm-hmm. I'm not well versed in it, but this particular part of it I find fascinating. And it's a very simple set of, you know, phrases, scriptures, verses, passages, whatever. And it's talking about literal work. Like it's talking about farming, but it's also talking in metaphor. And it says, and I've said this on my show so many times, my listener of one is probably annoyed by now, but it says, you have a right to your labor. You have a right to do the work, but you have no right to the fruits of the labor, which is to say you have a right to speak. If you're a saxophone player, you have a right to play your sax, but you don't have a right to be at every great jazz club and get accolades, you know? And so it's just like that with new media. You have a right to get your fucking webcam out and talk into it and start a YouTube channel. You have a right to start a podcast. You have no right to great successes. So if you need to do it, that success matters less. I mean, we're all human. We like success. We're all human, we'll be crushed by failure. But if you love the work, you have a right to it at all times. And that's what keeps me in this. I do love this work. Yeah, I love it. That's why I do those live streams because I love sharing music and ideas and playing stuff. And if it's 100 people listening or 10,000 people listening, I don't, it, obviously more is better because it puts you in a position to continue doing it, but it's not why I do it in the first place. Exactly. And you have no right to it. No right to it at all. No right to it at all. Um, what people have a right to is an equal playing field to give them the opportunity. We know that that's not, well, I mean, philosophically speaking, they do, but we know that that's not fair for everybody. We know that gatekeepers prevented that from happening, but that's not really the case anymore. It is in systemic ways for sure, but you can still reach audience. And this idea that the audience owes you their attention is not I just don't find that sound for my worldview. Other people's worldview might find that sound. I don't find it sound. Okay. I want to tell the other story that I tell about you on the air. I feel like I'm coming clean. I've used you as a prop. This story's, I think you're going to like. All right. You were there. I don't think you realized you were there, though, you know? Okay. So this, we had just met. I'm still working in tech. I'm maybe two years away from quitting my job, three years away from quitting my job mulling it over this is this something i'm going to give my life to being an interviewer being a media personality whatever you know this is a hobby that is driving me to leave a career and this is what i'm grappling with you'd think someone like that would take it very seriously and in my mind i was taking it about as seriously as you can take it without diving all in mm-hmm. we meet what's it burning man I ask you to sit in on my show. You don't know this, but I grew up watching you on TV. At the time, you intimidated me. I'm like, okay, this is someone I'm interviewing who's not just my stupid friend who I met in the stand-up comedy scene in San Francisco. Right. I'm excited to have you on the show. Well, I didn't even know you were Canadian. I think when I first saw it, I didn't assume it. I I think I'd heard you on the radio before driving into Burning Man a couple of years and someone had, and then I think when I got there, someone said, I think you might even have said you're from Toronto. And I went, oh, I didn't put that together. You had, the first time we met, I had just called my mom to confess to her that I masturbated in the bed next to her. And you were like, oh, that was really funny. I'm George. I'm like, George, I know who you are. I'm Canadian. 
Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> that's funny. Oh my God. But that's not the story I want to tell. So I, I, I can, maybe a year later, maybe the same year, don't remember. I convinced you to sit in on my show. You do. It's me, you, and Miranda. You had a lot of fun. Honestly, we became friends afterward. You probably didn't think anything of it. Yep. But for me, I'm like, okay, this is, you know, I'm, my usual gets are stand-up comedians who can maybe draw two audience at an open mic, you know? Mm-hmm. Now I talk to such big names as, um, well, I talked to my superintendent of my building once. <laughs> but at the time, I'm like, you can get in my mindset at the time. Sure. So this is, I'm excited. I want the show to go well. I want to be, uh, I, I, I look up to you. I, yeah, I won't say more about that. We do the show. It goes fine. You're happy with it. Whatever. I was drunk during the show. I know that. And afterward, you were sitting with me, just chatting. We were talking about Burning Man, doesn't matter. And I remember saying to you, ha, 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 how drunk were you during that? And you're like, dude, I've been sober for 20 years, 25 years. Yeah. I don't think you realized. I like, yeah, the next day I, I literally looked at myself in the mirror and I'm like, I clearly don't even respect myself. If anything, show up to a taping like that sober. It's the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, being drunk on the radio is a tough thing. But look, Burning Man's not really radio, right? That's the thing. It's different, you know, because it's, it's a whole other. But, it, but, but no, George, it was for me. Yeah, okay. And when I always talk about the power of Burning Man, I remember once I went to the airport and I was talking to some of the people who worked there. Now, they weren't air traffic controllers, but all of the, one was an accountant. One was a waiter. One picked weed. But the common thing was they wanted to all be in aviation. And for two weeks of the year, they got to wear the hat. Yeah. That's the power of the event. Me working at that radio station. Now I see it for what it is. I see it like you see it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. But then that was all I had. I was working in tech all year. And then two weeks of the year, I get to work at a radio station and a really fun one, I might add. So, so when I told you that I was, that I was clean on the air with you, that surprised you? I mean, I had known that you were straight edge, but yeah, it did. I, I just. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's Bernie, man. Yeah. I think it just blindsided me. Cause I was just like, what am I doing? I'm drunk all the time. I show up to everything drunk. How can I take my work seriously if I'm disrespecting myself that much? And yeah, a week later I cleaned up. I'm really happy to re- I'm happy to hear that. I really am. I, I um, fundamentally believe that if you show up to a thing fucked up, you're not taking it seriously. I do too. Because you don't know the power of it. But I was drinking every day, George. I was showing up to everything drunk. Well, well early in my career, that's what I would do. Early in my career, I would end up and I wasn't feeling and I wasn't in the best state of mind and I would go on the air. And that's why it stopped. I stopped because I had this moment where I thought, I remember, I remember very clearly, I wasn't supposed to work one night on a talk show that I was, this is when I was 21 years old on a a sports station. I had the night off and I got a call from the boss. He had messed up a schedule and asked me to come in and do a show. And I was very early in my career. So I didn't, I had no reason to expect I would get that call, but I also could not say no to that call, but I'd been into it since the earlier part of the day. And I remember saying, absolutely happy to come in. And I showed up at the radio station. It was an overnight talk show out of my mind, drank a ton of coffee, pre-internet too, David. So you had to know things. You couldn't research things as you were doing the show, right? <laughs> you had to, so I would lay out all, but I would lay out all these sports books and magazines around and, and then I would take calls. And I remember pulling it off. Nobody knew that I was drunk except for the part that I did. And I remember thinking to myself, if I'm serious about this business, I have to be serious all the way. And so I quit. You, we all have our moment, but we were also like, I was really young too. And I just had this moment where I thought, 
this is an interesting opportunity to meet strangers where they're at in the middle of the night because nobody who's listening to overnight radio wants to. They're either up because they can't sleep or they're up because they have to work. Nobody wants, it's not good for the body to be up at 4 a.m. listening to somebody talk on the radio. So I, I, be, I became very aware when I was very young that if somebody's spending their time with you, they're in a, under a certain level of duress just to be there with me. I better take that seriously. That's how I started to approach it. So it's very similar to what you went through. Yeah, and you say you were very young, but I got behind a mic for the first time at, I think, 28. So for me, that's like, if it was five, six years ago, that's, that's the same. It's funny. It's the same. And, and you did, I assume, I never asked, but you didn't give a shit or even necessarily even notice. I was such an alcoholic that I could be wasted all the time. And when people are like, oh, you don't seem like you're drunk, that's when you have to start worrying, right? Because you're so used to it and you do it so often that you just seem normal to people. It was exactly the same. Yeah, totally. It's been a long time since I walked into a radio station where I see a big bottle of booze on the counter, for sure. But but I would say this too, is that Burning Man is so bizarre that I, it never even occurred to me. I just assumed everybody was like that. Burning Man's just not, it's just, as you know, it's an alternate reality. So I, I never, I don't take Burning Man and think of it as the real world on any level. So that radio station experience was just fun for me because I just thought, yeah, what, what a really cool opportunity to go on here and be messed up on the radio. Because that reminds me of when I was a kid. So I thought that's fucking neat that people get to do this. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't judge it at all. And that's the other thing. I don't judge anybody for how they approach their life. If they, no, I, I never thought you, you noticed cared. I was just some dude that was at that time talking to you. But for me, I was like, this is the moment where I either respect myself and my work seriously. Uh, I also was having str struggles mixing booze with Xanax, which as you know, can stop your heart. A hundred percent. So I just, I'd cut out the Xanax about six months prior the drinking had gotten progressively worse, I guess, to whatever. Uh, and yeah, a week later I quit and it was, the moment was exactly the same, I guess, as yours. Yeah. You just wake up one day or you, you just sit back and think, okay. I, I remember hearing this story that Richard Pryor told about when after he had, I think he was freebasing and he set himself on fire and he ended up in the hospital and Jim Brown, the legendary Jim Brown came to visit him. And I believe the story went something to the effect of Jim Brown looked at him, stared at him and just said, so what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? And I hear an awful lot of people spend an awful lot of time talking about their independence and their ability and, and, and self-determination and all of these things. You know, this is my story. This is my truth. This is my path. I hear that all the time. I hear the word, especially maybe it always existed, but on social media, you hear it more and more. My, 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 me, 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 me. <laughs> cool. Co cool. Right. That's your thing. So then what are you going to do? You can give me all the reasons why you are the way you are. All the reasons why that are not your fault, that are not in your control. Here are all the things that have you. Right. What are you going to do? And not in a, and not in a pull yourself up by the bootstraps way. I'm not telling people to do that because that's not, but more like going back to what we, we talked about earlier, which is I never grew up believing the system was on my side. So even though I think the system should be on our side, it's not going to be. So that's why I consider myself a street left, not an academic left. I'm a street left. And street left is, yes, all these systemic things need to change. Yes. And while people are fighting to change the system, what in reality is happening on the street is nothing is going to change for a long time and we're going to continue to get pummeled. So what are you going to do? That's what, that's the conversation I had with myself. And, and you had that, what are you going to do moment, right? What are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to keep going or are you going to change it up? And change it up I did. Mm-hmm.
those are the two things that I've talked about on because you know I I talk about whatever on the air. I'm extremely not that private. Yeah. <laughs> Although in reality there are a few boundaries of others that I'll respect. Like certain things about Miranda or my family where I would talk about it, but I know it would hurt people, so I don't. Yeah, same. But like graphic sex stuff, I don't care. I'll talk about anything. I don't um You talk about that stuff about you and Miranda on the air? Oh yeah, of course. You know that. But how does she feel about that? She deals with it. <laughs> Why, what do you want to know? You want to know what her butthole looks like? Come on, what's going on? No, no, I do I do not. I do not. No, I was just curious um, how she handles that. Looks like a butthole, George. It looks like a butthole. I assumed, but I never really thought about it. Well, mine does. It mine's all messed up with the fissures. Is it really? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's why you talked about it with your friend. You're in the example of how you can oscillate between real and ridiculous. I, I think that it's okay. I think that is okay because, because the reason you focus on the ridiculous is that actually if you dug deeper drives to the real of who you are and how you feel about your place in this world. I also think when you start talking about topics people have never touched, like what their genitals look like, whatever, they immediately get disarmed mm -hmm. because they're not used to talking about it. And they're like, yeah, you know what? I can talk about this. And then I can sneak in the real shit like traumas or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's a tactic we're complete people. We have different ways. We have, we have a complete experience. Those are the two ways in which I brought you up on the air and I've always felt weird about because I feel like I've talked about you without telling you. One, you helped me out when I kind of needed you the most uh, by introducing me to the PD at um, CFRB in Toronto. And the other was the drinking thing. Those are the two. That's it. Now you know everything. Do you hate me? Those are big. Why would I hate? Those are big things. Those are really important things. That's my job as a human being and as a friend. That's my job. Well, it feels exploitative. It feels like I'm exploiting our friendship. Why? What part of it? By talking about it? For content, George. Oh, I don't care. I don't care. I mean, I, I, everything I do in my life involving other people, um, it's now their story and they get to do what they want with it, right? They get to do what they want with it. So if it was just my story you were exploding, it would be different, but this is your story now. So, and I also, I knew, I know you, like I didn't have to listen very long to know how you would be. <laughs> so I knew that whatever I do, it was going to end up as a bit. Right. That's just what it is. Jim is like that to a degree, not as much, but there was a long time where Jim was like that and um, where the bit, everything is a bit. Well, uh, but I was, all, I always had a very big divide between my personal life and my public life only partly because I have en enough people who listen, who will show up at my place and it's a bit. So for safety, I, I am very careful about how I do that, but I was never really, and that's the thing about me, right? Is that most of what I do has never been about me. It's been about my curiosity and my search for values. So we, we, we still want to entertain and help people get through the night, but we just do it differently. You know, I'll throw an occasional story about my life in there, more and more on the live streams, because that's what it's kind of about. But I don't really talk about my experience. Uh, I just talk about a worldview that I have, but that's it. Because I'm a deeply private person. I don't want my life on display. You can trust me, despite your feelings that whatever you say to me could be a bit and this will kind of piss off the listeners because it's like <laughs> giving them a little bit behind the scenes. But there's a, something I asked you early in this interview where I cut it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's not in the show because ultimately I care more about our friendship than using every little fucking nugget on the air if it's your personal life and you don't want it disclosed. No, and I appreciate that. And I don't even think, and I didn't tell you to cut it. I just wouldn't answer the question. I'm going to cut it because yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not, there was a younger me who's like, that's the, mo that's the space I want to exist in that edge space where I've pushed people just past their boundaries and we'll see what happens. And that's great. 
I don't do that anymore. I've burnt too many bridges. It's not compelling. It's not the person I want to be. And I'm, I'm cutting what you said earlier. It's a short little thing for those interested. It's not, it wasn't even that interesting. I'm cutting it for me, you know, cause I don't want to be that person who crosses people's boundaries and you're telling me what your boundary is. And I know, know that about you. And that's that. So will I use a story where it's just you and me? Sure. But like, am I going to tell people your mother's home address? No, George, I'm not. No, no. And I appreciate that you, that you won't do that. Um, but it's a big part of me, which is, is I, I, I have boundaries, but I don't expect anybody else to follow them or respect them. My boundaries are mine. They're not yours. So if you ask, if somebody asks me a question that I don't want to answer, I'll just say, I don't want to answer it. And here's the reason I don't want to answer it. Sometimes I'll give the reason. Sometimes I won't. And they can keep pressing. And I, it's my responsibility to figure out my way through it. Um, but I'm very different that way. I'm very Gen X that way. I'm very, I am like smack dab in the middle of my experience is nobody else's responsibility. My feelings are nobody else's responsibility. And the way, what happens to me in the outside world is nobody else's responsibility. I'm not saying that everybody should see the world that way. That's just how I was raised because that's my experience. And I, and I still talk, I talked to a guy the other day who's from the old neighborhood that I'm from. And the kids today still have this very similar experience to what I had because the system is never on our side. So, so my whole life top to bottom is you do what you want. I'll do what I want. And, uh, and it'll just kind of play out in the wash. I never worry about that kind of stuff. Have you ever been interviewed? This is probably my last question for you. Cause I imagine you have to go in a few minutes. I'm, I'm all right. Yeah. Have I ever been interviewed? I have. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, George. Great question. <laughs> That's why I'm the best in this biz. <laughs> have you ever been interviewed where someone crossed that line and you walked away from it being like, fuck, I shouldn't have said that. <sighs> There are a couple of, well, no, they, they haven't crossed the line because I don't really think anybody can cross a line with me. Like I said, it's my, I'll just be like, whatever. There's time, there are times where I've done interviews where I thought that was a waste of my time. And this is one of them. Well, listen, it's okay. This is okay. I mean, it's you, me, and Miranda might listen to five minutes of it. So like seven people are listening to this. And by the way, those seven people, they're important to me. Seven. You have an inflated sense of my listenership if you think seven people listen to this. I mean, I listened to it back in the old days with that first one that you did years ago. Oh, God. When you were in San Francisco. Oh, God. So, no, I, I have definitely, um, I don't do, there's a lot of interviews I won't do anymore. Like, I hate doing morning show radio, in Canada especially. I hate doing morning show radio only because I feel like all I'm doing in, is directing one movie, right? Which is the one that's going to flash before my eyes when I'm dying. And Everything I'm doing in my life is about directing that one movie and what scenes do I want and what scenes do I not want? And what I don't want is a morning show sound effect guy asking a question that I have no interest in answering because he hasn't done any work to, to talk about the listener. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm not knocking them all, but there's a, there's a collection of, there's an approach that I just have no interest in participating in. I'm not mad at them. I support them. It's just not where I want to be. So I definitely do say no to a lot of things. Uh, and I've been in some morning shows where not to me, but to the other people, if I'll be co-hosting a morning show, they'll have like a listener on and the level of degradation that exists in most corporate radio is so gross to me that I have no interest in the sexism and the homophobia. I just don't care. So I, so that I, I tend to stay away from a lot of that stuff. That's for sure. I don't, I don't walk out, but I'll definitely like think, okay guys, that's been great. Have you done morning shows or, or any show terrestrial radio? in countries in like Africa or where you go to do humanitarian charity work? Have you ever done local radio stations there? What's that like? I've done, um, I did evening news in Zambia, uh, which was pretty great, but I liked it because in places like that, 
we're talking about real things. And I really, really like that. I really talk like my, my big thing is most people who interview me are either afraid or unwilling to have a real conversation. And you know me, I'll have a real conversation all day long. So a lot of times when I'll go to different places around the world where there's a level of crisis there, we, yes, we have fun, but we're talking about real things. And I love that. I must be wild. I don't think I've done morning show radio. I've been, I've been lucky enough to be in Africa several times in my life. Uh, and I'll be going back maybe in a couple of weeks, but the, I don't think I've ever had one of those Jackie and the monkey morning shows or Jackie and the sc- scooter. Does that exist anywhere but the U S and Canada? I don't know. Like, the, well, no, but wasn't that, was it David Cross who said that there was always like a name of a person and an animal in the morning show? Like there was a, sc- a scooter or a monkey or a, or a squirrel or so I, I don't, I I've been all over the United States. But so, so I don't think I've experienced that when I've been in other parts of the world, when I was in Pakistan or, or, or even in Africa or in Haiti or in, you know, it's just in Northern Greenland in the Arctic Circle. I, I don't experience that kind of media uh, there, but I also just don't, they don't want, they also don't want to talk to me because why would they? What, I'm not, I'm going to show up in real talk about a crisis when they just want to do jokes. I'm not, that's not who I am in the morning. Um, but I'll tell you a funny, it's not even funny, but I remember when I was 24 years old working in radio in Toronto at a rock station and our studio was under renovation. So we were broadcasting from a trailer, a caravan parked in a park where it was very compromised park near the Eaton Center in downtown Toronto. And I remember getting a phone call because I used to give away tickets and there was a woman shooting a movie in town. I used to come in all the time to get tickets to concerts and she would just call, hey, can I get a ticket to this concert? And I'd say, sure. And she would come in. It was Janine Garofalo. And she was always very nice. She would pop in. We had, we'd give her uh, concert tickets and away she'd go. She's really nice. She's so, so nice to me. She was like, yeah. of all the like celebrities I've met who didn't know me and had no reason to know me, she was like the nicest ever. That's, a, that's like my memory of her. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, she was really, really sweet. George, thanks for coming here today. David, my pleasure. You've always been a very good friend to me. You've been very supportive of me for, in my opinion, no good reason. I know you have your reasons. I don't have any reasons, like, except for the fact that I... I just think that people should hear what you have to say. Like, that's it. I like you, but there's always a good reason to care for somebody, which is to care for somebody. Yeah. That's the reason. It's nice knowing that, you know, my, that you believe in me. And I, that, that means a lot to me. And I do. And I'm happy. And I'm grateful to be on this podcast with you. And do you know the name of your listener? No. I mean, there's a few out there. I'm trying to think who would be the, (laughs) maybe Eric would be the most sort of participatory listener. Not because he's any better or listens more than anyone, but I remember one night Eric called in to a show I was doing for Bell, and I, th- I think the topic was, what's weird about you? Mine was, I could bite my toenails. Uh, a friend of mine's thing is he always eats wrappers of muffins and cupcakes, like the waxy wrappers. I listened to that. I listened to that. I, I listened to that, and I, that call, and it blew my mind because I thought, what would a therapist say about that experience? <laughs> I just remember listening to that thinking, this is incredible. Because what I loved about that call was just the things that you would never think that are wrapped into the human experience, somebody's experiencing it. And they have their own legitimate reasons, and that totally works. For some, it's chewing the gum and then swallowing it. For some, it's not spitting out the shells when they eat sunflower seeds. For other people, it's eating the wrapper. And if the wrapper is food grade, why not? <laughs> anyway, Eric was... He said his weird thing, 
was that he wrote erotic fan fiction about the show. And he used like all the characters and all the things to like describe this erotic fan fiction thing about the show. And I just thought it was so funny. I'm like, this listener gets what we're trying to do. Uh, and I'm, pr- I'm sure Eric will listen to this. And yeah, so Eric, you can address Eric directly. I just, I'm fascinated by the human experience and I'm grateful that Eric shared that. Well, mine is I bite my toenails. What's weird about you, George? I, I don't even, I, the flex, I can't touch my toes. You can bite your toenails? Yeah, I, I, I can see, look, I got the foot up to the mouth. Ow, I'm getting too old for this. Oh my God. I only do it after I shower, George. Immediately after I shower. That's good. Do you not believe in toenail clippers? I, I bite my fingernails. And so when I get through to those, it's like all I have left are my toes. Right. Um, what's weird about me? There's got to be some personal habit that is just bizarre. Like pick your nose and eat it. There's got to be, it doesn't have to be gross necessarily. No, no, I am obsessed with time. I am obsessed with time. I am obsessed with shaving seconds off of my experience. I will time my drive one way a hundred times and see if I can beat my time. I am a, maybe it's because I feel like my life is running away from me, but I will, I will stack my life up in a way that is almost unsustainable. That if one thing goes off by three to five minutes, it throws everything off because I have, I've tried to squeeze so much into a day. So my, my OCD about time is absolutely insane. And it makes people in my life's life a little, <laughs> very complicated because I'm constantly, but it's also in because I built this unsustainable life of scheduling. Like I've been on probably 70 flights and since, since I saw you last at Burning Man, I've been on 50, 60 flights probably since then all over the world. Jesus, that was two months ago. I, no, I know. I've, I have, I, I have flown so much since Burning Man that, and I have only five more cities to go before I had come home for Christmas. So it's, um, so my, my relationship, and I think because early in my life, maybe my coping mechanism for the insanity of my life was to control the time I had and how I spent it. That's why uh, perhaps I'm like, now I just do it for fun. So what I do is I take whatever my bit, whatever my, my neuroses is, I experience it fully, then I beat it, like I work through it, and then I take the experience, and I use it for something positive. So now it just makes my drive to work different all the time on a motorcycle. Can I beat my time? So I feel like I'm racing on my way to work all the time. So I kind of enjoy that. I am doing a Thanksgiving with a bunch of Canadians. My friend Tony's flying in from England. If you're in New York on the 23rd, come to Thanksgiving. Let me see here. I will be in Saskatoon hosting a charity event in Saskatoon on that day, but otherwise I would be with you. Cancel it. What do they need, those Saskatoonians? They're fine. They'll be fine. It's just cold. They need, <laughs> they need heaters. and. It's a great place. <laughs> Uh, George, thanks for coming here. Appreciate your time. Uh, DTC, a pleasure as always. Say hi to Miranda and tomato for me.